Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading today comes from Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise up first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we are picking up exactly where we left off, just just the next verse, uh, going into the next chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you all are children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep at night... And those who are drunk get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other as indeed you are doing. It's the word of the Lord. So we're going to start this morning by watching a little video. This is a documentary that was done back in 2007 on a group of people that are known as Strong City. So it's going to be fairly self-explanatory, so I won't give you any forward explanation. You can just watch and enjoy, and it'll have to do with our sermon today. In a remote arid corner of New Mexico, 50 miles from the nearest town, the members of Strong City are counting down the months until the end of the world. I think I really feel a lot of um, relief that it's the end. Yeah. 
Esther and Danielle were the first people I filmed after arriving here in April 2007. Looks like that's what Father's saying now, just a little bit longer and you're going to come home. Mm -hmm. Where you were meant to be. Yeah. It's like we weren't made to live on this earth away from Father. It's just going to be awesome. We leave this world behind. Mm -hmm. It was astonishing to hear young people talk with such longing for the end of the world. It's sworn in the Bible that it will occur. Mm -hmm. It will end. And so we have our, we have our, uh, our hearts set on that, on the, on the promise that we were given, that this will happen. Mm -hmm. So you're looking forward to that, that time? Yes. With all my heart. <laughs> Precious friend and father, that everything you design for us is ordained by heaven. This is Michael, the 66-year-old man they worship. Seven years ago, he declared himself Messiah and convinced his followers God had revealed a prophecy to him that signaled the apocalypse. And he told his followers that they must achieve death to self or be lost when the end comes on the 31st of October, 2007. You might have been a little bit off on that date. <laughs> so, as you all know, we're going to come back to that in a little bit. We're doing a sermon series called Church and State, The Rise of Early Christianity. This series looks at the history of the early church through the documents we find in the New Testament. And... This series is broken into four parts. The first part deals with the formation of the early church from 30 to 70 A.D. And last week, we were introduced to a very important figure in the early church. You remember who we talked about? Who was he? Paul. We talked about Paul. So Paul, I argued, is perhaps the most important figure in the early church next to Jesus himself. And when Paul first came into contact with Christianity or with Jesus' movement... He was not super taken with it, to put it mildly. In fact, he says in his own words, I was violently persecuting the church of God. But then something amazing happens to him. He has this experience of the resurrected Jesus. And with this experience, it totally transforms his life. Whereas previously he was fighting against the church, now Paul all of a sudden is one of its most ardent supporters. And Paul believes that Jesus has given him a mission. And this mission is that he is to go out into the Gentile world beyond the Holy Land and preach Jesus' message to non-Jews. The problem that Paul is going to face again and again is that he was not with Jesus when Jesus walked the earth. He was not part of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. And therefore, the problem is, is that as he goes out and sets up all these churches, is that Jesus' inner circle is going to come in and undercut him. But what I tried to explain to you is that if it wasn't for Paul, we wouldn't be sitting here today. We would not be in this sanctuary. Because if Jesus' movement had been left in the hands of the original disciples, the Christian religion would have failed. And so beginning today and throughout the rest of the series, we're going to be exploring how exactly Paul saved Christianity from failure. Now before we can dive into the meat of this sermon, I want you to take out this handout that was given to you this morning. There should be a handout in there. It looks like this. Folded sheet of paper. Now you'll see 
on this folded sheet of paper that there are two columns. The column on the left side is the column that shows the documents that are in the New Testament in the order in which they appear in the New Testament. Many Christians make the mistake of assuming that this is also the order in which they were written, Matthew being first and Revelation being last. But as you can see from the column on the right side, that is not the case. That the order in which we find them in the New Testament has nothing to do with their date of composition. Now, I've given you this list for two reasons. The first reason is that the date of composition matters a lot. The order in which they were written matters a lot. Because if you read the documents in the order in which they were written, you can see an evolving picture of what's happening in the church. And you can also see an evolving picture of how early Christians thought about Jesus. The second reason I'm giving this to you is that I want you to hold on to it. Please don't just throw it away when you leave this morning, or if you could do me a favor, if you're going to throw it away, throw it away once you leave the sanctuary, okay? I want you to hold on to it and put it somewhere. You can put it on your refrigerator. Keep it somewhere where you can make reference to it, because this document is going to help you understand why this sermon series is ordered in the way that it is. So the first part of the series goes from 30 to 70 AD, right? So 30 is what? I say that's round numbers when Jesus died and was resurrected. Where does 70 appear on here? What's that? Gospel of Mark. So that's the first document we're going to deal with in the second part of the series from 70 to 90. But as you can see, the first seven documents, 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Philemon, 2 Corinthians, Romans, and Philippians, these are all letters that were written by Paul. All of them. So this first part of this series, it's dealing just with Paul's letters, which might sound super boring, but the fact is, it does paint a picture for us of what was going on in the early church. So this leads us to 1 Thessalonians, which was written when, according to your list. 51 AD. That's when it came up. 51 AD, or CE. CE means common era. I use CE in there because that's what scholars use when they're talking about dates, as opposed to Anno Domino. So, this is the first document, the earliest document we have in the New Testament. And it tells us a lot about the types of churches that Paul was forming when he first began his ministry. But before we can dive into 1 Thessalonians, I need to tell you a little bit about the city of Thessalonica. I want to paint a picture for you of why he would choose this particular city to establish one of his first churches. So Thessalonica, it was located in northern Greece, or still is to this day, and as you can see, this is a modern map, and it's called Thessaloniki on the map today. And it was located in an area known as Macedon. And when the Romans took it over, they declared that Thessalonica was going to be the central part, the capital of Macedon. And that was for good reason. You can see that off to the right there, you got Turkey. All the trade routes went up towards Thessalonica from the east. So what would happen is people would get their wares and they would ship them on ships up there. And so that's where they would distribute them from, is right up there in Thessalonica. So it was a very cosmopolitan city. It was a city that had a lot of things going on inside of it. And most importantly, it had a very large Jewish community. Now from what we can tell, in the early days of Paul's ministry, he was going out and going to these very cosmopolitan cities with populations that had large Jewish communities in them. 
Every single one of them. Which is kind of strange, right? Because, what did I tell you? What did he believe his mission is? To go out to who? Gentiles, Gentiles who are non-Jews, right? But in the early days, here's the thing. He focused his ministry on what are called Jewish Gentiles. Now, these, these are people who live outside the Holy Land. They're not in Jerusalem or any of those things. And they're kind of seen as kind of like secondary Jews. They're not like real Jew-Jews in the sense that Jew-Jew-Bees, you know what I'm talking about, right? They're not, they're not like that. Like, they're secondary. They're off to the side. And so he's focusing on these people. And then later, what will happen, as we'll get into Actual Gentiles who have nothing to do with Judaism start to come into this. So what Paul does is he'll go into a city like Thessalonica, and he'll find the synagogue, and he'll go there on the Sabbath. What day is the Sabbath, by the way? Saturday. Saturday. Very good. Okay, so they go in on Saturday, and he wants to find an opening to talk about Jesus. And from what we can tell from tradition, it says he goes in there three times, he preaches, and he's successful. I mean, 1 Thessalonians tells us that there were a group of people who believed him and went with him, and they formed this church in Thessalonica for the first time. It's important, though, that you realize that these people didn't break away from the synagogue. It's not like they formed a church like this and they had a building. None of that. They still went to synagogue on Saturday, but more than likely they would have met Sunday morning, the first day of the week, before they went off to work, which is why we have the tradition to this day of meeting on Sunday mornings. So, the question I always ask myself, and I've always wondered about is, exactly what did Paul say to these people to make them believe in Jesus? Because it must have been something pretty compelling, right? If they were willing to reorient their entire belief system around Jesus. And thankfully, we do have a little bit of an allusion to what Paul might have said to these people in the letter we read this morning. So let's take a look and see what he says. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then all, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. It's very dire, isn't it? What's he talking about here? He's talking about the end of the world, right? He's talking about Jesus' second coming, which he says is going to bring with it great devastation and destruction. If we read between the lines, what he's saying here is in response to a question that they've asked. And the question is, hey, when's Jesus coming back? And his response is, only God knows, just like I told you. So we just have to wait and see. But built into this answer that he's giving back is Paul's main argument for why these people were willing to believe in Jesus. And essentially, what he's saying to them is, hey, Jesus is going to be coming back any day now. That's what he told them when he was trying to convince them to believe in Jesus. In other words, he's sitting there and he's saying to them, hey, you're going to want to be prepared because when Jesus comes back, things are going to get crazy and you want to be on God's good side for when all of this happens. So it's not just the fact that he goes in there and he says, oh, by the way, Jesus is the Messiah and everybody was like, oh, that's great. I think I'll come follow you. No, no, no. It was his insistence that something major was going to happen soon. 
Something major was about to occur, and therefore, your belief in Jesus was going to pay off immediately. So I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine. You're finished with service today. You're getting up. You're about to leave, and there's some guy back there. He's like, hey, come here. I want to talk to you for a second. So you walk over to the guy, and he's like, hey, look, it's good that we had an opportunity to speak to each other, because I have it on good authority that the world is about to come to an end. And Alex, he's a nice guy, but he's not going to be able to help you with that situation. So I want you to know that you need to come with me, because I know exactly what to do in this situation. I know how to save you from the coming destruction. Now, most of you, what would you say in that situation? Would you say, sure? No, you'd say thanks, but no thanks. But then there might be a few of you in here like, you know, that guy's got a point. Alex doesn't know what he's doing when it comes to the end of the world. (laughs) So I'm going to go follow him to make sure that I'm safe. And then after a few weeks, we'd all look around and be like, where's Judy? Where did she go? And we'd all say, well, she went off and she joined that cult. Because that's how we think of cults, right? What are cults? These small groups of people who think the end of the world is going to come soon. And so we have to realize that that's kind of like what we saw in the documentary. Strong City, those people, all those people who are together, they think the world's going to come to an end. So what you need to appreciate and what's so important for you to understand and take away from this sermon this morning is that the earliest Christians, they were like the people in those cults. The people who joined the earliest churches that Paul formed, they believed fervently that the world was going to come to an end at any moment and that Jesus was going to come back and was going to establish his reign over everyone and everything. And that's where these cults get this idea that the world is going to end. They get it from Paul's letters. It's not like they're just making it up. They get it right from this source. So let's take a closer look at these letters because it's very interesting what's going on in here. So, Paul, he's writing these letters because there's something happening in the church in Thessalonica. Something interesting. People have died since the church was founded. And of course, Paul, after he would found a church, he'd like leave within a couple of months, maybe within a year, he'd take off. And he'd go off and he'd form another church. So these people, when they have questions, they have to write them letters, right? And they, they put all the questions in the letters. And they send it off. And so they're asking him these questions. They're like, hey, Paul, what happens to people who die before Jesus returns? Like, should we be worried about that? And by the way, you said that Jesus was coming back any day now. It's been a little while. Uh, should we be worried about that? And what we, should we be doing in the meantime? Could you just give us a little bit of answer to all those questions? So, they send this off, and Paul, this is his response. This is what we're reading. It's his response to these questions. And so you can see how he's thinking about these questions in his answer. In the first reading we went through this morning. So, let's take a look at this, because what's interesting about this is that he is actually responding. He's thinking about these things in the background, and he's going to talk about Jesus' second coming, which he's going to discuss in great detail here. So he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together, with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Okay, what's the question in the background? Let's, let's review that. What are they asking about? 
what happens to people who have died before Jesus' return? And their answer to that question, or his answer to the question, is that Jesus, he's going to come from the sky, because you have to realize the way they thought about it is that heaven was literally in the sky. If you get high enough, you could get to it, and there was a door up there. They didn't understand anything about space or any of that stuff. So there was a door. Jesus would walk out of that door, and he would float down, and then that would trigger the resurrection. And so everybody who's dead is going to get rebuilt. They're going to be given new bodies, pieced together by God. And then those of us who are left, who believe in Jesus, we are literally going to be raised up in the air. We're going to float up into the air to meet Jesus in the sky. Very detailed, huh? Very specific as to what's supposed to happen. And of course, Paul will say that he received this information directly from Jesus' mouth. So even though we look at these cults like Strong City, and we think to ourselves, wow, these people are kind of crazy, all they're doing is adapting Paul's letters to the modern world. That's all they're doing. Now, I don't think it's fair for us to paint the people who joined Paul's church in Thessalonica with the same brush as the people who were part of Strong City. It's two different times, two different places, two very different contexts. The people who joined Paul's church in Thessalonica, you have to realize that they lived at a time where life was really, really hard for most people. You know, there wasn't a consistent food supply. Famines happened all the time. Disease was rampant. That's one of the reasons why people are dying in the church is because people get a disease and they just die from it. And then on top of that, you have a government that was brutally violent. So what you have to realize is that for these people, the idea of Jesus' return was a good thing. They wanted it to happen because what that meant is they would get relief from their suffering. But in our world today, things have changed a little bit. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, in the last hundred years, we've solved many of the problems that have plagued humanity for tens of thousands of years. So, for instance, today, we produce enough food for the entire world to be able to eat. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has access to all that food. All I'm saying is that we produce enough food that the whole world can eat. We've also got disease under control. Diseases that used to wipe out whole segments of our population, vaccines have taken care of a lot of that. And then we have sanitation. We get rid of our waste and we have clean drinking water. And then we also have democratic governments. So you don't have to worry as much about your government coming after you and killing you. So I would say that most of us sitting in this room, would you agree that we live pretty good lives compared to the people in the first century? Oh yeah. Would you say we live pretty good lives compared to most of the people around the world? Oh, I would. So I think for most of us in here, we would say, well, I hope Jesus returns to fix other people's problems. <laughs> but you know what? We don't need Jesus to come back to fix our external circumstances. We're in pretty good shape. And I would argue that most of us wouldn't want Jesus to fix our external circumstances because Jesus' version of the world is way more simplistic than ours. Say goodbye to your cars. Say goodbye to your gadgets. Say goodbye to your houses. Say goodbye to your money. None of that's going to be with you once Jesus comes back. But beyond how Jesus' return would affect us as individuals, I think this sermon raises a much larger issue for us living in the 21st century as Christians, which is, what is our motivation 
for believing in Jesus. Because it's certainly not the motivation of the people who were part of Paul's church in Thessalonica. Would you agree with that? I mean, did you all join this church thinking to yourself, you know, this would be a good place to be when the world comes to an end. That's why I'm coming here. No, I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't people in here who don't believe in Jesus' re uh, return at some point, but I have a feeling you're not expecting that to happen anytime soon, and it's probably pretty low on your priority list. And the reason why is because we have almost 2,000 years of hindsight on Paul at this point, don't we? I mean, Paul, when did he write his letter? What did I tell you? What was the date? 51. So he's 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's saying he's going to come back any day, so it's pretty close to the event. Here we are, 2,000 years later, and Jesus still hasn't returned. Now, I've told you all in the past, and I'll tell you again, that in my opinion, Jesus' return, it doesn't really register anywhere in my theology. I'm not worried about it. I mean, Jesus can prove me wrong. I mean, that's fine if he wants to do that. But that's not something that I really think about. And the fact is, I actually think it can detract from what our role is as Christians. Because for people who are waiting for Jesus to come back to solve and fix all the problems that we see in the world, I don't think that's a viable solution for the things that are going on around us. To me, people who look at Jesus that way, like you're going to come back and fix the world, in my opinion, I see that kind of like those heads on Easter Island. You know what I'm talking about? These heads right here? You've seen these things before, right? Okay, so like archaeologists for years, they were looking at these heads and they're wondering, why did they make these heads? What are they all about? Why did they create them? What's their purpose? And so they wrote literally hundreds of academic papers about this stuff. And they were trying to figure out, what do the carvings mean? What, did they worship them? All this stuff. And then in the mid-90s, somebody had an idea. Maybe we should dig a little bit. And they dug a little bit more, and they dug a little bit more. And then they realized that the head was only a very small part of the rest of the statue. That in fact, there was all this stuff underneath and that all this earth and silt had built up around it. And so everything that they had assumed to be true about it was totally wrong. So when I think about people who are waiting for Jesus' return in 2017, it's like people who are looking at the head of this and not seeing the rest of the body. You're focusing on something to the exclusion of everything else. And Paul even says in his letter, like the letter that we read this morning, Paul says specifically, he's like, don't get so fixated on the details. I know I'm giving you detail about this, but don't get so fixated on it because it's going to cause you to miss the larger picture of what we're here to do. Regardless of when Jesus returns, you're here to build each other up and you're here to make the world a better place while you wait. And when I look around this room, I know the people in here, they care about making this world a better place. I look around this world and I know you all are not waiting for Jesus to come back to fix this place. You all see the bigger picture. And I've watched as you all have rallied around people in this community who are struggling and suffering. I've watched as you all have rallied around people outside this community who are struggling and suffering. You all have a keen sense of being aware that you are Jesus' hands in the world. And that if God is not working through you, that the world is not going to get fixed. I want to tell you how proud I am to be part of this congregation. I don't often tell you this, guys, this enough, like we just kind of do our thing. But I really am proud to be part of this congregation. You all care so much 
about changing the world for the better, and I'm honored that you all would allow me to be your leader. And I really believe that working together, if we work together, I believe that there is nothing that we cannot accomplish with God working through us. And so my prayer for you this morning, as you leave here, is that if you ever have the opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus' second coming, whether they're joking with you, or whether they're saying, hey, when is Jesus going to return? I hope that you will sit there and say, hey, Jesus exists right here in my heart. Jesus is working through these hands. And so you need to know that Jesus never left. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.